Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. How can you tell if a secret government document is genuine? What precautions should you take if you plan to report a UFO experience? Where is it all going anyway? Greetings and welcome to the 584th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those far-out questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening we bring you a wide-ranging discussion with a distinguished guest who is well-known to our listeners, and we welcome your calls this evening. Numbers to call, 800-449-1240, that's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, and 401 766 one two four zero. That is locally. Also, we will monitor emails. Paul at behindtheparanormal.com for your emails. Stanton T. Friedman is a nuclear physicist, probably the world's best-known expert on flying saucers, and is one of the founders of modern UFO research. He received his B.Sc. and M.Sc. degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist by such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas. Working in such highly advanced, classified, eventually canceled programs as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and various compact nuclear power plants for space and terrestrial applications. He became interested in UFOs in 1958 and since 1967 has lectured about them at more than 600 colleges and 100 professional groups in the 50 U.S. states, 10 Canadian provinces, and 18 other countries, in addition to nuclear consulting work. He has published more than 90 UFO papers and has appeared on hundreds of radio and television programs, including three times on Larry King Live. He is the original civilian investigator of the famous Roswell incident and co-authored the book Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident. Other books he has co-authored or co-authored include Top Secret Magic, M-A-G-I-C, about the Majestic 12 group, which we will discuss this evening. Another book is Captured, the Benny and Barney Hill UFO Experience, co-authored with our frequent guest Kathleen Marden. Their latest collaboration, As Science Was Wrong, released in June 2010. Mr. Friedman has provided written testimony to congressional hearings, appeared twice at the United Nations, and been the recipient of innumerable awards and honors. We're proud to say that he wrote the foreword for our first book that Ben and I have written together, Cosmic Journey Behind the Paranormal, coming this fall. Stan's website is stantonfriedman.com. So, Stan, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Glad to be on. Oh, glad to have you. So, let us start off with something, well, not really simple, but, you know, it's, it's, it's simpler than most questions that we have for you this evening. Uh, <laughs> can, you tell us, can you tell us how copies of the MJ-12 documents came into your hands, and what do they say? Well, I was working fairly closely. I was living here. I'd moved back to Fredericton, New Brunswick. Moved to, I shouldn't say back to. I hadn't lived here before. <laughs> but uh, uh, in 1980, I'd worked pretty closely with Bill Moore and Jamie Chandray out on the West Coast on Roswell. Uh, Bill and I found a lot of the witnesses. Uh, and uh, I got a phone call indicating that they'd received a roll of film in the mail. It had been sent to Jamie Chandray, Southern California. And uh, he was meeting Bill for lunch that day, and they here's a roll of film, unprocessed, 35-millimeter film. Bill was able to develop it. He had access to facilities. And on it were these two sets of eight negatives each of the Eisenhower briefing document, a top-secret, eyes-only uh, 
majestic 12 document. There's a briefing for the president-elect Eisenhower. This is dated November 24th, uh, 1952. Uh, and I got elected uh, earlier than that, but wasn't going to take office until January of 53. So he was the president-elect. And this was uh, purportedly a briefing for him. Uh, and it listed a number of attachments that we didn't get. But the essence of the matter was that uh, President Truman had authorized the establishment of a group called Majestic 12 in 1947, September, after the Roswell incident. And it mentions in there not only Kenneth Arnold's sighting, which got a lot of attention, in, on June 24th, 1947, but also uh, the Roswell story. But it says that uh, they hadn't made much progress understanding flying saucers until a rancher had recovered the wreckage of one and uh, with bodies and, uh, you know, a rather astonishing claim in that in response to this... Uh, President Truman established this group called Operation Majestic 12. It named the 12 members of the group. Now, I don't know what's magic about 12, whether 12 disciples or 12 justices of the Supreme Court or, you know, (laughs) make your choice. But it was an impressive list of people, all but one of whom we could easily determine had had very high-level security clearances and made sense. In other words, there were five six military people and uh, outstanding scientists, all of whom had been involved in the recently completed the Second World War. Uh, but there was a real red flag that named one of the people uh, as Dr. Donald Menzel of Harvard University. Now, the only trouble with that was he had written three anti-UFO books, had given numerous papers, the best-known debunker of UFOs around. How could he possibly have been part of a group that knew about recovered bodies and wreckage and all this sort of thing? And who suggested, according to the text, some people had thought these beings might come from uh, Mars, but Menzel had thought from another solar system. So we're confronted with a a conundrum here. What's going on? Is this legitimate? Uh, is it all made up? We certainly weren't going to go public with it until we had, uh, you know, something to work with because, uh, you know, the last thing we needed was somebody to come forward saying, gotcha, guys, you, you bought that, I made it up, or something like that, <laughs> which has not happened, of course. And then over the years, there were, I, I didn't get a copy right away. I was living back here. I didn't want to send one, but I was, I got a, a look at a copy because I was back early that year, uh, 85, uh, when my son was ill in the hospital in California, and Bill showed me a copy of the document. And then they started getting some crazy postcards from weird places like Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and some place in, well, that, this is what it said, uh, someplace in uh, New Zealand and, and so forth. And the the upshot of what was in these postcards is that it made it sound like it would be a good idea for somebody to go back to Washington uh, 
it mentioned the Suitland, which is one of the archives that we had been to. Uh, Bill and I had been to several archives, so this, this was not new for us. And uh, the problem was we, we cooperated, and uh, I was in Washington in March of uh, 85 for a conference on radiation, food radiation, I guess, and other nice nuclear topics. And while I was there, I stopped by the National Archives and talked with uh, a, an archivist that I knew well. And uh, he had told me that uh, they were just working on declassification of a record group, which had uh, Senator Russell's UFO. Now, Russell was uh, a, a big-shot senator from Georgia, and he had had a great sighting while on a train uh, over in the Soviet Union. And so this had been a top-secret report, and it was being declassified at this time. So I certainly recommended that if, if you're going to Washington, you ought to check out that stuff. And I knew that they were working on, on declassification of record group, uh, whatever it was, 221 or something. It doesn't matter what the number was. Uh, and they thought they'd be finished fairly soon. Well, it took them several months. Uh, finally, at the end of June, we found out they were finished, and Bill and Jamie went back there. And I go through this long-winded harangue because uh, while there, looking at uh, this material that had just been declassified, they happened to look in Box 189. Now, one of the postcards came from Box 189 off in the middle of nowhere someplace. They didn't notice that until afterward. Hey, look at that. Anyway, in it was a memo, the Cutler-Twining memo. Robert Cutler was Ike's national first national security advisor. He'd been a general during the war from Maine, incidentally. May even be related to the, whoever they named the city of Cutler after. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, well-known, and in Ike's trust and so forth. Like I say, he was the first uh, national security advisor that Eisenhower had. And in this memo, it mentions NSC, National Security Council, MJ-12, special working group kind of thing, that a meeting is going to take place. The time for the meeting had been moved a bit in notifying General Twining. Now, Nathan Twining... uh, was an Air Force general. He'd been on the NACA, uh, National. Uh, they, that became NASA later. Technical background, and he was head of Air Materiel Command in 1947, which is where Project Blue Book was eventually located. This is at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. And this memo from Cutler to Twining really didn't say anything other than its mention of NSC MJ 12. And uh, it isn't signed. And it turns out that's very important. So we got that memo, along with the Eisenhower briefing document, like eight pages, uh, was a letter from President Truman to Secretary of Defense James Forrestal, authorizing him to proceed with Operation Majestic. And, of course, you got these documents, and 
with advice from Vannevar Bush, who was one of the best-known scientists in the world during World War II. And uh, uh, he was authorized to proceed with advice from Bush and from the head of the CIA, who happened to be uh, Roscoe Hillencutter. They're both listed as part of this MJ-12 group. Okay, so you've got paper, you've got documents, and the question is, are they doing or are they not? And then there came a flood over the next several years of other documents. There's probably 100 phony MJ-12 I only think four are genuine, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Yeah, we were going to ask you that next. Well, the, the kicker here is, put yourself in the place of the government. Uh, if good stuff got out, and there, there are a couple of timing things here. The uh, roll of film, the first one, was received at the end of December 1984. Now, the last surviving member of this group of 12 uh, died three months earlier. And he'd been the last survivor for almost a year. Hmm. He was the first to be born and the last to die of the group, which was kind of interesting. Jerome Hunsaker uh, from MIT, scientist. And so it's hard to imagine that that's a coincidence. And, of course, there's a little question of national security here. Let's assume the document is genuine. Wherever it was being stored, it would have been against the rules to bring a camera in. That was one of the rules when I worked under security. Yeah, no radios, no cameras, uh, etc. So he was, in the first place, violating the law by photographing this thing, if it was genuine. And second, he certainly violated the law by disseminating this top-secret magic information to people without a security clearance or a need to know. That's against the law. It's not against the law to have possession of a classified document. But it is against the law if you receive it, if you have custody because you have an appropriate clearance and need to know, mm-hmm. to give it to somebody who doesn't have a clearance and a need to know. That's right. And I should stress that you need both. I have found people who think if you've got a secret clearance, you've got access to all the material. Oh, very true. Yeah. That is, you know, that isn't true. You don't have access to it. No, no, that's exactly right, yeah. You have you require a need to know, and uh, you know it's kind of like people first thought was well, all these guys would have told their wives. No, which is absolute nonsense. I mm-hmm. never told my wife anything classified. It'd be utterly stupid. Besides breaking the law and maybe my losing my job, mm-hmm. uh, loose lips sink ships. That's right. Uh, I can't control what she says or where she says it. We don't know who's out there. Uh, you know, just waiting to listen to tidbits. There are spies everywhere. You know? <laughs> well, and I suppose there are in a way. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, as, as I tell people, uh, you can't tell your friends. Why can't they just tell us what's going on? Uh, I said, you can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. Mm-hmm. They listen to your radio program. They read the newspapers. Uh, it, it, there's no way to do that, in other words. Uh the Manhattan Project was a good example. All the other high-security, very expensive projects. Uh, that and, and what's interesting, if you start looking around at these things, and I, I get people telling me the government can't keep any secrets. Dr. Uh, 
Neil deGrasse Tyson said, the proof that we can't keep secrets is how much we know about President Clinton's genitalia. Mm-hmm. Which is a pretty stupid thing to say, frankly. Uh, and you start looking around, and you have to find, not only can the government keep huge secrets, and just a, a little sliver of information, two years ago, the Washington Post uh, had an article they had access to somebody, uh, and they said that the total budget for military intelligence that year was $52.6 billion. Mm-hmm. And mostly as CIA, NSA, and NRO, National Reconnaissance Office. That's a lot of money and a lot of secrets being kept. And, you know, we get some scientists who say silly things like, well, if, if all this stuff was going on, there'd be articles in the scientific journals that people tell me, Roswell, there would have been an article in the physical review. Uh, there's a heck of a lot of advanced research and development that goes on outside of academia. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like in England, they broke the German codes. Okay, it was very important for the victory World War II. It's nice to know where your enemy is sending his troops and his ships and all that sort of thing. You know, uh, you think they would have uh, made a big deal about that at the end of the war? Look what we did. I mean, the movie out there, uh, which uh, does tell the world, but it's a little late. You know, we're talking about what happened during World War II, but there was no word in public about her having broken the codes. It's all the Enigma machines and all that sort of stuff. Until 25 years after the war was over. Mm-hmm. 12,000 people at Fletchley Park in England were well aware of it because they were intercepting, decoding, translating, and very carefully releasing the information to people with an appropriate need to know. Many officers didn't know about it. Uh, that's one of the things that helps keep secrets. There are guys around Washington who think of what you're saying was true. I would have known about it because I'm a big shot. That's right. Yep, yep. You know, ego is one of the primary things. Arrogance goes with ignorance sometimes. A bad combination. Uh, yes, yes. And, you know, I get people who uh, say, look, Stan, there isn't any large body of secret information about UFOs. We would know about it. And, you know, it, I'm sure we've talked about it before, but... General Carol Bolander put the end to that crazy notion uh, when he stated in the memo that resulted in the closure of Project Blue Book, which was ostensibly the government group concerned with UFOs, the only government group concerned with UFOs, it, it was closed at the end of 1969 because of General Bolander's memo. He was asked to look into it. He had nothing to do with Project Blue Book. He was a good, solid engineer, worked on the lunar excursion module, believe it or not. And, of course, we landed on the moon in 1969, July. And right after that, he was given the chore of, okay, what should we do about Blue Book? The Condon report had recommended that Blue Book be closed because it really wasn't contributing much to science or intelligence or whatever, and I agree with that instantly. Mm-hmm. So here in this memo, which we didn't see until 10 years later, mind you, 
dated October 1969. Bollinger says, moreover, reports of UFOs, which could affect national security, are made in accordance with JNAP 146, or Air Force, that's Joint Army Navy Air Force publication, 146, or Air Force Manual 55-11, and are not part of the Blue Book system. Now, that's an extraordinary claim. Since the Air Force has been saying since the early 50s, the only group we have concerned with UFOs is Project Blue Book, before that Project Signing Grudge, but uh, from the early 50s on, Project Blue Book. And here, this memo says that we will continue to be investigating these after Blue Book is closed. And... he says that reports which could affect national security, which presumably would be of far more interest than run-of-the-mill sightings of lights in the sky, would continue to be investigated using the procedures designed for that purpose. Where the heck is all that stuff? Well, I located after, this is ten years later, mind you, a guy named Bob Todd had uh, managed to get the memo under freedom of information, I think by mistake. I think it was, that's kind of dull sounding. I mean, if you're not interested in this kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I, so I decided I would try to locate General Bolander, and I much prefer looking for people with unusual names than for the John Smiths of the world. You know? Indeed. And so I located him, and I spoke to him on the phone. And I told them that I'd had a clearance for 14 years and that I was very interested in UFOs and that it seemed to me from reading his memo that he was saying there were two separate channels for information, communications about UFOs. One for the -the run-of-the-mill stuff that Joe Blow can see out any day uh, and two for the stuff that could affect national security. And I used one example because I just had a case like this where somebody told me about a UFO going down the runway at a strategic air command base where nuclear weapons were stored. That's national security by definition. Because mm-hmm. there's not supposed to be anybody there who doesn't have a need to know and so forth. And he agreed with me. Two separate channels. And so it makes a lie out of everything the Air Force has said every year since 69. No national security aspect. Uh, and I get a real kick out of how people are saying that the FBI uh, in- exhaustively investigated these documents and they're not genuine. All they did was I- issue the version of the document that had bogus written all over it by Colonel Weaver, whose specialty, believe it or not, was disinformation. <laughs> well, he authored the, the big uh, Project Mogul explanation. Oh, yes. Uh, You know, and when he was asked by Nick Redfern in England, who's written a number of UFO books, I don't know whether you've had him on or not. Yeah, a number of times, yeah. Yeah, okay. Then Nick had written him, Colonel Weaver, a Freedom of Information Act request for uh, what's the story on MJ-12, and... It got back a note that everybody knows that they're phony documents. He sent me a copy of that, and so I filed the Freedom of Information Act request for any letters, documents, et cetera, et cetera, that would provide some basis for this claim. Sent to a foreign national, mind you, 
by a serving military officer on official stationery. We're not talking playing games here. We have nothing in response to your request. And yet we have people saying the FBI thoroughly investigated. They didn't do anything. He wrote bogus, big words, uh, letters uh, across each page of the eight, uh, eight pages of the document. And that was it. That's what I call research by proclamation. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, that's not how you get at the truth. And so I've been working away at these things, uh, again, partly because we certainly didn't want to go public and have somebody show us to be idiots. Uh, but I dealt in depth with the, the claims that have been made by the debunkers. Some of them government claims, mind you. Um, that is... Uh, uh, for example, one of the documents is listed as top secret restricted. Well, there is no such uh, security marking, some people said. Restricted is the lowest uh, classification, top secret is the highest, so why would anybody put those together? Uh, obviously, the document's fraudulent. Well, when people make general statements like that, you know, they forget that back then we're talking typewriters. We're talking about many different people able to classify stuff at different locations. Mm -hmm. And when I was going through the report that the GAO, General Accounting Office, a uh, government accounting office, which is it? I don't know. Come to think of it. Uh, oh, yes. In which they were looking, it's a 400 page report, in which they were looking for stuff for Congressman Schiff about Roswell. So they visited a number of facilities, looked through tons of paper. And in the course of this document, on page 81, I think it is, they were at a facility where there was top-secret material and technology material and so forth. And they looked, and they found nothing about Roswell. However, they noted several instances of the use of top-secret restricted Majestic 12 in uh, parentheses. Hmm. We found several examples of that, even though we had been told that it was not in use by the government at the time. So I called a couple of people I had talked to at the GAO when they were doing their investigation, and I said, how do I get copies of those? You know, I'd sure like to have them. Stan, you can't. They're still classified. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But they're saying so, and an official report is good enough for me. But, I mean, that, that's an example. Okay. Another example is that some people say, look, all top-secret documents have to have top-secret control numbers on them. That's the way it was when I served at this or that installation. Well, I had already published two top-secret documents that didn't have control numbers on them which I've gotten at an archive, no question that they're being genuine. Mm -hmm. So I checked with both the Eisenhower Archive, of libraries and archives, uh, and with the Marshall Archives. I've been there several times at the uh, Eisenhower Library. And uh, <laughs> the Marshall Archivist said, Stan, if they had to have top-secret control numbers on all top-secret documents, we'd still be fighting World War II. Well, are. Stan, I have to interrupt you for our break at the bottom of the okay. hour, and then we have a caller. So you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Van Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And we'll be right back with Stan Friedman after the break. 
Hi, I'm Bob Vila, and I'm going to level with you. I've got your home improvement tip of the day right here. The Bob Vila Home Improvement Tip of the Day can be heard every day on ON1240, WON Woonsocket Radio at 745. And it's brought to you by DNS Painting of Woonsocket. They are Rhode Island's trusted choice for residential painting. All right, and here we are. We're going to uh, talk about one chair. We usually take a moment at this point to talk about our charities, but we'll do that at the end, except for one. And we have Frank Vashina with us. Frank has been a guest on the show a number oh. of times. And uh, Frank is also a, a well-known to Stan, and uh, we're yeah. all kind of, a, kind of a, a bunch here in the loop when it comes to this charity, I hope. So, Frank, what is going on with Baby Ariel? Um, about a year and a half, I did a small fundraiser for uh, Baby Ariel. She lives in Missouri, and uh, about three years ago, she was diagnosed shortly after she was born with a rare brain uh, condition. It was a disorder, and it's uh, polymicrogyra, and uh, also known as PMG. And what it is, it's a de- uh, developmental malformation uh, of the brain, and this poor kid was born with part of her brain missing. And she's uh, handicapped at this point, blind, and she's in braces and what I'm going to be doing this time, it's uh, going to be a little bit bigger event than the one I did a year and a half ago for this child. Um, I'm going to be a guest author and illustrator at the Daytona Beach <clears throat> Comic Convention here in uh, Daytona, and it's going to be held at the Embry-Riddle uh, Center. And I'm having a signing and display. Well, to cut to the chase, promoter Tom Ralph and several of the dealers and vendors are going to be donating a lot of high-end items, and we're going to have a big charity benefit auction for this baby. And the ultimate goal is, guys, what we want to do is uh, raise money for a van for this baby and the family so uh, the the kid could get around and have a wheelchair um, lift attached to it so this way they can bring this kid back and forth to the hospital mm. and doctor's appointments and stuff at that point. So like I said, about a year and a half ago, I, I did a small fundraiser, and it went over good. Now this time we have a lot more people on board, and with uh, the help of uh, great guys like you, we can hopefully get this thing put together and launch it off. Sounds great, Frank. Where can people find out more, and where can they donate? Well, uh, flatwoodsmonster.com is my website, and if you go into Flatwoods Monster you will see the first link along the top we placed um, up there for everybody to go to the several links. There's a big article on Facebook, and it's been getting overwhelming amounts of response. Good. So all you have to do is go to my website, and then you can follow the links from there. Um, Alfred Lemberg's on board with us again, and I would just like to thank everybody for their participation in this. And uh I'll be on your show, uh, what, sometime in early July, Paul? Yes, yeah, I'd have to look at the schedule, but uh, uh, Frank is an expert on the uh, Flatwoods Monster case, so-called, which is very interesting, West Virginia, and we've done a lot on that, and I understand you have some new information. Uh, While we have you here, Frank, do you have any question or comment for Stan? Uh, to tell you the truth, I haven't listened to the show. I've been busy talking with everybody all over the country getting this thing going. Okay, great. <laughs> but I've driven Stanton uh, crazy enough for the past 20 years with the Flatwood Project, <laughs> right? Well, we, we, we're, trying, we're trying to take up that cause uh, at the moment yeah, as well. He was so. an educated 
education for me, Frank, and I really appreciated yeah. the opportunity to <clears throat> see somebody do the in-depth research that you've done. I get so sick and tired of the people who do their research by proclamation instead of investigation. And you're a good example of somebody who investigates rather than proclaims. So thank you, Stan. And, and, and the reason I basically got involved in this whole um, thing with this baby in the first place, Ariel Peregrino, is uh, because of the Kleist family in West Virginia. And Stanton's been in a flat with West Virginia several times. Yeah. Uh, Peggy Kleist was the former mayor of Flatwoods, and her son, John, was the mayor before her. And she got me into the community. It, it wasn't an easy road trying to break into the Flatwoods community over 20 years ago. And Margaret Kleiss and her son helped me get into the, the community itself. They accepted me, and then they introduced me to different people. And over the years, when my books came out, they set up all my book signings. Stan was up there with me for the 50th anniversary, yep. and we had a big parade, and it was the first time the majority of witnesses had gathered together in Flatwood. So the Kleist family, uh, we owe a lot to. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Kleist's best friend, uh, his name is Rod Freeman. It's his grandchild who's sick. Uh, so this is what we're giving back to the community here, to the Kleist family and to their friends and this little baby. So, um, like I said, if you go to flatwoodsmonsters.com and you hit on the link, you'll go straight to the Facebook and all the information is there. And there's a GoFundMe page there if you can't make the charity auction, and it's going to be at the Embry-Riddle ICI Center. Very good. Frank, thanks a million for calling in, and we'll, uh, we'll keep pressing that. Thank you, man. I appreciate the time. Okay. Well, it's always good to have Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Talk to you soon. All, All right. right. Okay, so let's get back to our discussion with Stanton Freeman on the MJ-12 documents, etc. Indeed. So, all this being said, Stan, do the M- does MJ-12 still exist? Well, I think uh, a couple of things. One, there was clearly a need back then, and I think there's a need now, um, for a central coordinating body. And I think that uh, the name would have been changed. Standard practice, if the name gets out, uh, you got to change the name. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that goes without saying. So I think there is an organization filling the same role. I mean, think about it for a minute. The key factor here is that all the good equipment and loads of manpower is available to the government. You know, none of us have our own radar installation or our own spy satellite or our own spies hither, thither, and yon. We don't get feedback from military pilots chasing UFOs. Uh, and clearly, right, well, let, let me illustrate this. I recently had a, an email from somebody who had been an Air Force colonel, uh, was flying in Europe on alert, uh, ready to be scrambled, they got a call saying there would be a scramble and picked up something on radar and uh, get ready. So he gets ready, goes up. He spots this object glowing. He's chasing it. He's going at 500 knots, uh, over 500 miles an hour. And suddenly this thing speeds up and is going 1,800 miles an hour. And as he put it, this is back in the 70s, uh, we didn't have anything, and neither did the Russians that could do that, you know, go that fast so suddenly. 
And then it makes a turn, and a very abrupt turn, and goes past him, going the other way. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he tries to turn around, puts on his speed brakes, as he put it, uh, as quickly as he can. And this thing went up to 2,000 miles an hour. It went past 80,000 feet. And, uh, you know, a shocking thing for an experienced pilot. And so he comes back, he gets, he lands, he's running out of gas. <laughs> you can imagine when he tried to chase something going that fast. A full afterburner, I guess. Anyway, he comes back and he gets interrogated by a guy in a suit. Not his, his boss is there, an officer in uniform. He doesn't know who the guy in the suit was and how, where'd he come from? How did he get here so quickly? Asking him a number of questions, and he started to ask some questions of his own, and his boss shook his head, <laughs> you know, don't do that. And it really uh, shocked him. And he said in his first note to me that, gee, I don't know of any classified UFO documents and stuff like that. After I wrote him back, uh, then he opened up a bit more, and it turns out he plays golf with a number of pilots, and he was amazed military ex about the number of them that have had sightings and he found somebody who used to be in the air defense command and he asked him about well how often do you did you get reports of things coming in and then going out you mean ufos the guy asked him yeah (laughs) two or three times a month two or three times a month yeah this is a central coordinating head and so the point here is that who cares about John Q. Civilian? He doesn't fly high-speed airplanes. You know, he doesn't have instruments. He doesn't have gun cameras that he can use to chase UFOs. And, you know, you, you just had Frank on. Uh, in his book about Flatwoods, he does talk about the fact uh, that there were over 200 fatal military crashes military aircraft crashes between, say, 1952 and 56. And I have had seven different people tell me after my lectures very quietly about being at military bases where pilots were scrambled and never came back. As a matter of fact, orders were issued in 1952. Shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. And an Air Force general admitted they'd been planes had been scrambled hundreds of times. Just standard operating procedure. My point is this, that this is the kind of data that you'd need a central coordinating body for. Not only analysis of wreckage, but, you know, think of a, a stern wagon wheel with a rim around the outside uh, or no rim, but with a hub in the middle, no spokes. So information goes into the center, but it doesn't go the other spokes. And so uh, somebody has got to put all that stuff together. Not only wreckage evaluation, which takes a lot of different kinds of skills to evaluate, but also analysis of things like gun camera footage. And there are other instruments besides cameras that can be used. You know, how does the electromagnetic signature of the UFO change? And what does that tell us about how it works? And all this kind of thing. Mm. And so, you know, MUFON gets 700 reports a month or so. 
uh, that those are basically civilian reports. And, you know, there's an organization called NARCAP. You probably have had Dick Haynes on, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. And some of the other guys. Uh, they got well over a thousand reports from sightings, uh, from pilots, sightings by pilots, who don't want to go public. They're afraid of losing clearances, uh, retirement benefits, all the rest of that sort sure. of stuff. Yeah. So it's the good stuff that whatever the new name is for Majestic 12 would be concerned about. I mean, uh, look, a basic question. What the heck do these guys want? Mm-hmm. Are they a threat? to our society? Are they working with anybody else on this planet? You know, a silly notion maybe, but somebody would say, well, look, these bodies are awful small. Maybe they're working with the Chinese. Uh, you know, that's not an illogical question. No. Is there a connection here? So you'd want an ongoing uh, check on several different aspects. One, how many different groups are coming here? Are some of them good guys and some of them bad guys? Uh, look, you probably had Bob Salas on the show. Actually, no. Oh, well, you should. We will. <laughs> He's a good man. Anyway, uh, when you hear about these stories, uh, Bob Hastings, too, about nukes and UFOs, uh, surely the government is concerned if uh, a bunch of intercontinental ballistic missiles go offline one after the other, when that's not supposed to be able to happen. That's the word you get. It can't happen. They're all independent. That's our first line of defense. So, uh, obviously, the aliens are concerned about that. We must be concerned about their concerned about that. And what does it mean? If there was a war, would they stop our bombs from being used? You know, uh, there's some serious, really serious questions here. And you'd need a central coordinating group. That's the terms I use. I'm sure there are other terms that are used. Mm-hmm. To handle the information, to keep track of what's going on as much as possible in the civilian world, but primarily uh, in the military world. And, you know, there's a part of this that nobody ever talks about the Navy and UFOs. Oh, very important. I have talked to a number of former Navy guys who told me of great sightings that occurred while they were out on the ocean. And you can keep things, keep the lid on pretty easy out there, you know. Yeah, it's true. And the Office of Naval Intelligence was the big intelligence agency many years ago. They were the first of the big ones, certainly before the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. And so, uh, a quick little story, I try to get information from the Navy uh, History Office. We don't have anything about UFOs. And so I sent them a copy of a report written by Air Force Intelligence and Naval Intelligence. (laughs) Both names are on it. Uh, thank you very much for the interesting report, but as I told you, we don't have anything about UFOs. <laughs> yeah. You know, what can you do? Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I don't know how to break through that. It's kind of like getting my own files. When I filed with the FBI and the CIA at the same time many years ago, first year from the FBI, we don't have a file on you. I told them that I'd had a clearance for 14 years. It gave them all my background. Mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of guys with my name and date of birth, for goodness sake. They must have a file. Well, uh, then I hear from the CIA, which says, all we have on you is a negative name check request from the FBI. And they sent me a copy of it. And it had a file number on it. So I sent a copy of that to the FBI. Could you recheck your files, please? I have reason to believe, see the enclosure, that you do have a file on me. 
get back a very polite note. Uh, we have rechecked our files and find that indeed we have a file on you, but it's classified. Okay, I said, I'd like to know the size of the file and the level of classification. I'm sorry, but that information is classified too. So first they That's tell you they right. got nothing when any reasonable person... I, I had people call me when my clearance had to be renewed every five years. I had people call me and say, Stan, why is the FBI asking about you? Mm-hmm. And because they need... Uh, Stan, you still with us? Still here. Okay, yeah, you're, you're cutting in and out here, but... Uh it's possible there's a storm at some some area. Anyway, so so please continue. We can hear you now. Uh, well, we can't. We could. Well, we, we could. <laughs> we could hear you. All uh, right. So if if um, if if not, uh, we'll we'll give you we'll give you a call back. Yeah, as we still have uh, ten minutes here. Uh, well, why don't we? Uh, oh. let, let me give one good example. Okay. Yeah. We we missed most of that because you keep cutting out. Okay. Oh, well, at least you're back. That's oh, you're plus. back now. Okay. So. Uh, uh, let me give you a specific example of how not to do document research. I'll give you two of them. One was the Honorable Philip J. Class, the biggest debunker, one oh, of the yes. most successful propagandists of the last century. Uh, one of these documents, the Cutler Twining Memo, is done in the large pica type. Class jumped to the conclusion that it must be a phony because I've got ten comp, ten documents in the National Security Council, and they're all done in the small elite type. This one's large, a pica type. Obviously, it's a fraud. And I challenge you to find any other genuine documents. You had a bunch of criteria. You've got to be signed and a number of other things. And I will pay you $100 each for every such genuine document. Uh, up to a limit of 10, unfortunately. Uh, and I say unfortunately because, he, as, as it turns out, would you believe, he'd never been to the Eisenhower Library. And he was making claims about their document holdings. They have over 200,000 National Security Council, uh, pages of National Security Council material. He got 10 by mail. By mail, mind you. I was going there when he made this challenge. So I, I did a two-part response. I went to my files and pulled out about 15 PICA-type documents. They didn't meet all of his criteria. Only two did. And I guess he thought he had me. But I was going to the Eisenhower Library anyway. So I went there. I picked out 14, made copies, uh, sent him copies, and an invoice for $1,000 because he'd only paid me for the first 10. And he paid me. And I get a great response at my lectures when I show a copy of his check. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that, yeah. You know, but it's one of those stupid things. How can you make such a charge? How, how can any reasonable person generalize from ten to 200000 that, that That's ridiculous. No, it's, it's true. Stan, I want to get one more question in here. Sure. Um, now, as, as you know, uh, now, now you... I remember you sitting politely in the audience at one of the conferences we both attended last fall and listening to me talk about how we got into UFO research relatively recently because we'd be investigating what were supposed to be ghosts and we'd end up 
very often with UFOs and greys and this sort of thing. Um, people thought they were seeing ghosts and it turned out to be perhaps something else. Unexplained lights in the sky, etc. Military, paramilitary activity in the same areas. And this raises a question in our minds, and this is the question I want to ask you. Are the government and a few hand-picked corporations maybe the only players at that end of flying saucer research uh, contact and technology development cover up and all that sort of thing, or is there more to it? Have you ever suspected? So you know, I guess the question well, is, yeah, no, go, go ahead. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I would say there's more to it in this sense that when the government wants something big and important and highly classified done, they go to industry or the national lab. Hmm. You know, Lockheed for stealth aircraft, for example. Uh, there was a time not too many years ago when. The NRO, National Reconnaissance uh, Office, had a contract with Boeing to try to change the architecture, the arrangement of the equipment and how much energy it used and so forth. And the NRO spy satellites, they can pay half a billion dollars for one of those babies. I mean, uh, they're sophisticated, to say the least. And they finally canceled the program. They only spent $13 billion, and they hadn't gotten what they wanted. Uh, that's a lot of money, you know? And it's like I point out to people when I worked on nuclear airplanes uh, with General Electric. In 1958, we spent $100 million. We employed 3,500 people, 1,100 of them engineers and scientists. $100 million was a lot of money in 1958. It's a lot of money now. Well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But my point is, in other words, that it's not just within the government. It's contracted out. The CIA contracted with Lockheed to build the stealth aircraft. I mean, to build the U-2, uh, stealth also, but uh, the U-2. And they came in uh, under budget and on schedule. Uh, so it was done, contracted by a government agency, but the work done by somebody who really knew what they were doing, Lockheed. Now it's smart, but okay, same difference. You, you get my point, that I think there's a lot more to this uh, than merely checking on UFO sightings by military people. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to leave it there. But, Stan, before we uh, bid you adieu, would you please tell us about uh, your books, your website, where people can find out more about you, and okay. uh, some of the events uh, you'll be... The, the website is easy, www.stantonfriedman.com, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. And there's a whole section about my books and DVDs and all that stuff, and I autograph all the books I sent out. The books include Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. Kathleen Martin did most of the work on that. It includes my Flying Saucers in Science, uh, Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident, Science Was Wrong, which was also with Kathleen Martin and myself, uh, and Top Secret Magic, which gets into the MJ-12 story. There's an update a chapter in uh, Flying Sources and Science about MJ-12 as well. And uh, there's DVDs of people really interested in Roswell. There's one called Recollections of Roswell. 27 first-hand witnesses who can no longer be interviewed because they're all dead now. Oh, dear. Tell their yeah. stories. Um and there's a debate between me and Air Force Officer James Magaha. Are flying saucers real? And I say, yes. They didn't take a vote. This was at a university in Tennessee, Middle Tennessee State University. But 
It's, uh, you know, like 100 minutes long. Or no, it's two hours, 120 minutes long. Uh, so you can hear both sides of the story if you want. Okay. Uh, and so uh, there are also some other articles on the website, and it gives my schedule upcoming events, like I'll be in Roswell, like I'll be at the MUFON conference in Irvine, like I'll be at... Uh, I'm speaking in Las Vegas uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Oh, my goodness. And... Uh, uh, there's an out, uh, a, a conference in England that I'll be speaking at. These are all listed at the website, www.statenfriedman.com. And I do take PayPal, which saves a lot of work and trouble and all yeah, that sort of does. stuff. And you can get my books other places, of course, but you only get autographs from me. <laughs> That's right. And uh, we promised Bill Smith and, uh, at the Exeter Kiwanis Club we'd be promoting the uh, Exeter UFO Festival. It's going to be September oh, yeah. 5th and 6th. Yeah. And uh, we'll all be there. Uh, ben and I will be speaking. Stan, of course, will be speaking. So it's a huge event and a very large turnout. Something of a tradition for us now. And it's yeah. going to be the 50th anniversary of the incident at Exeter. So they expect a lot of folks there, a two-day event. So uh, what will you be speaking about or do we know yet? Yes, I'm going to be doing an... Uh the truth about Operation Majestic 12. Well, Ooh. there we go. So we sort of got a bit of a teaser here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Very good. And also, um, the Lemonster Conference, uh, the what's now called the Greater New England UFO Conference, will be in October, and we'll be there as well and, uh, with Stan, and uh, we'll look forward to it. So everybody, stay tuned to the show for more information about that. Stan, thank you for a wonderful conversation as always, My and thank you, uh, thank you again for the wonderful preface uh, you wrote for our book, which... Uh, should be out by the time those conferences occur. And, uh, I was going to ask you if it was out yet. <laughs> no, excuse me? Okay. Okay, very good. Thanks a lot. We'll see Thanks. you soon. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye then. Okay, folks, uh, Stanton Friedman. Uh, let's get into our um, announcements then. We have much to go over and much to be said. So we start off with uh, Saturday, September 5th. We're scheduled to speak once again at the Exeter UFO Festival, which we just just mentioned. Yes, that is in Exeter, New Hampshire. The town-wide event is organized by the Kiwanis Club to benefit local children's charities, and other speakers include this evening's guest, the great Stanton Friedman, uh, along with Richard Dolan, Kathleen Martin, and Jennifer Stein. And we will provide more information as the date approaches. And again, that that is uh, going to be a two-day event, September 5th and September 6th, Saturday and Sunday. So on Sunday, October 10th, we'll speak again, as we said, at the Greater New England UFO Conference, City Hall, Lemonster, Massachusetts. Other speakers will include uh, Stan once again, Richard Dolan, Peter Robbins, and other UFO greats. Watch for information on that event and check our websites as well for uh, information as it comes along. And speaking of our show website, you can find all sorts of awesome stuff there, including 600 free podcasts of uh, all of our past shows from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows, and other podcasts. And you can find my books on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, all the usual suspects, Barnes & Noble Nook. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, as as Stan does, I will sign them for you. And you will help us keep all those podcasts free, uh, over 600 hours of them. Also on our websites, you'll find direct links to several charities Ben and I have adopted, including usacares.org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, BuildersHelpingHeroes.org, and Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, doing great things for at-risk youth out there on the West Coast, YouthMentoring.org. And we also will put the uh, Baby Errol Charity. I was just going to say that. Uh, yeah, this, uh, I'll do that as soon as we can this evening. And uh, please uh, uh, donate to that as well. It's a wonderful charity for little Baby Errol, now three years old. 
There are two new books just released by Global Communications, Timothy Green Beckley's publishing company, that would be of interest to our listeners. One is The Bell Witch Project, which contains that story and also a few contributions by yours truly on historic paranormal cases here in New England, including the 17th century Specter Leaguers of Massachusetts, very little known story, and the 18th and 19th century Vampire Hysteria in Rhode Island and Connecticut. Of special interest to folks here at uh, WO1240, uh, is uh, another Beckley book, UFO Repeaters, with an entire chapter around our old friend, Joe Ferrier, talk show host here for over 50 years. So next Monday, May 4th, uh, uh, you can also get all those books at Amazon.com, or you can find out links to them at BehindTheParanormal.com. So we are just about out of time, so why don't you get to the quote, Father? Well, why don't we just say our next, next week's guest will be uh, Tina Marie Cowett, a Woonsocket native, uh, who will be who is also a talk show host in the Southwest and is going to talk about paranormal goings-on out there. So check that out next week. Okay, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. We shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.